Hello, this is Wolfgang Munchau and welcome to the Eurointelligence podcast. And welcome Timothy Garten-Ash, Professor of European Studies at the University of Oxford. Timothy, let's talk about Poland and Hungary. Mateusz Morawiecki and Viktor Orban have built a strategic alliance to block the linkage between the rule of law and payments under the EU budget. What are we to make of this? Are they bluffing? Of course they are. What we have to understand is that both of them need the money. Both their systems are built on having huge, in effect, regime subsidies from the EU. But all their experience up to now, and Viktor Orban has a lot of experience up to now, uh, suggests to them that they can do what Boris Johnson only talks about, cakeism. That is to have your cake and eat it, because that's what they've been doing for years. And they believe, and they may not be wrong, that they can continue to have a huge slice of the EU cake uh, uh, and to eat it. How should the EU react to that? Let's start with history. I mean, um, I, I think the EU has been far too weak on this for far too long. And in particular, Germany has been far too weak on this for, for far too long. In this situation, it clearly is imperative that we get the new budget and the recovery fund. So it's a genuinely difficult situation. But what we absolutely should be prepared to do I still say we, thinking of myself as, as being part, at least in principle, of the EU, <laughs> is to be prepared to go down the enhanced cooperation route on the recovery fund, as you yourself have written, Wolfgang. Um, we, we have to have that as a credible threat to Orban and Morawiecki, and indeed be prepared to do it. When you, I mean, you've been studying and you know the Eastern Europe for 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 decades, and you know Poland at a very deep level. What do you see? What do you think is Morawiecki up to? Should we think of this as a as an attempt to to create a one party state, or is this just corruption and you know getting money, or is there a very sinister agenda behind that? So, I've been studying and traveling in Central Europe for more than forty years. I witnessed how Hungary and Poland became democracies. And in the last 10 years, I've witnessed how Hungary in particular has ceased to be a democracy, because it's really important to underline this point. It's not just an illiberal democracy, Hungary. Mm. It is not a democracy. It is a kind of hybrid authoritarian regime. And what is shocking about this is that this Erosion of democracy has happened over the last 10 years while Hungary has been a member state and using enormous EU funds that in the next round likely to be close to 10% of Hungary's GDP to uh, cement Orban's rule. Um, so it's, it's a very, and what we also have to understand that because of that fact, it is a kind of Potomkin village. That's to say, a great deal of time and effort has gone in to trying to pretend to be, to appear to be, to have the facade of a member state conforming to the standards laid out in Article 2 of the EU's fundamental treaty. Poland is a different case. Poland is much less far down the road. It's, it's more like an illiberal democracy, which is a 
liberal democracy in decay, there are much larger forces of opposition to the law and justice government. The danger in Poland is, is more complete chaos than a consolidated authoritarian regime. And Morawiecki, since you asked about him, it is both a, a certain game that is being played about um, having your cake and eat it, but there is definitely an ideological component appealing to notions of sovereignty, and I'm afraid specifically to anti-Germanism. Uh, recalling 2011, when David Cameron vetoed the fiscal compact, that decision set in motion a string of events that ultimately ended up with Brexit. Now Poland and Hungary are vetoing essentially the EU budget, not technically, but effectively. Is it possible that we might see a string of events that might lead to Poland and Hungary deciding at one point to leave uh, the EU? That's a very interesting question. Only the other day I was on a Polish language um, online discussion with a former Polish president and a former Polish foreign minister, both of whom were saying, well, we remember how Brexit started with a small group advocating it, and so we should take the danger of polexit seriously. I think this is a very, very long way down the road, if at all, um, because Polish public opinion is still overwhelmingly in favor of staying in the EU. And the economics of it, the political economy for both Poland and Hungary is overwhelmingly in favor of staying. Both the financial transfers they receive from the EU and the fact that their economies are in large measure part of the German economy. Uh, where would the Hungarian economy be without the German car industry? Uh, so I don't think that's the danger in the, I would say, in the foreseeable future. The danger is that Britain has left the EU but remains a liberal democracy. Hungary remains a member state of the EU but is no longer a democracy. And for me, the immediate question is, what are the long-term implications for the whole of the EU of having member states which are no longer democracies, certainly not liberal democracies, and which no longer have a serious rule of law framework um, uh, with independent courts and so on? Because after all, the EU is supposed to be a community of democracies and a community of law. Spinning this a bit further, where do you think this might leave the EU if Orban continues to get away with it, which is a reasonable proposition. He has uh, powerful allies in the European People's Party. Uh, you mentioned the link with Germany. The CDU is uh, the CSU is very close to Orban. Uh, he's very closely aligned with the Austrian uh, conservatives. Uh, so it, he is not as isolated as, as one might hope he would be. So, you know, is it possible that this game that he's been playing might just continue for a long time and that other illiberal democracies uh, or non-democracies might emerge in other places in the EU? I say this with a heavy heart, but I think it is entirely possible. Uh, I think that, that he's quite likely to come out on top in this round. He has been 
I mean, I knew him as a young, seemingly liberal man, student at Oxford uh, in the late 1980s, and so I'm then in Budapest. And we were not wrong to recognize in him a highly skillful politician, and he has played his partners in the EPP in general and and, Hungary, and uh, Germany in particular brilliantly, um, so that I think it is possible that, you know, the Hungarian tail will go on wagging the German dog and indeed the European dog for, for some time to come. Um, however, first of all, even though he has eroded democracy very far in Hungary, this is not irreversible. And his regime is so corrupt and there is such significant opposition to it that a pushback may come from inside. The pushback is already coming very strongly in Poland, where there are large independent media, you know, a major opposition party and so on. So that I think the pushback, as it were, to rescue liberal democracy is as likely to come from the countries themselves as it is to come from Brussels or Berlin. I regret that very much. I, I think that, that the EU should be taking this much more seriously and should be trying to work out other ways to support the rule of law and democracy. Um, but I think that's a plausible short to medium term scenario. Angela Merkel has prioritized the unity of the EU since she came to power in 2005. She rejected procedures like enhanced cooperation, fearing that it might split the EU. Uh, she, when the global financial crisis struck, she advocated pan-EU solutions. The Recovery Fund is a pan-EU uh, instrument. Uh, to this day, she is skeptical of any schemes that would lead to a breakaway of a group of of, uh, of, of EU countries uh, in, a, in a form of variable geometry, um, um, uh, enhanced cooperation. Um, so is, is this in part um, the reason why Germany has these uneasy relationships with the countries in, in Eastern Europe? She wants to keep them in. That is a priority. Uh, she doesn't want to offend, unlike the French, which are much more ready to offend. You know, recall famous uh, Jacques Chirac's famous uh, comment about the Poles missing an opportunity to shut up, um, and uh, Macron's willingness nowadays to use variable geometry structures. What I'm trying to get at here is that we are we are looking here at a very fundamental choice the EU has to make between the course that Merkel has chosen and a different cause that might see a split, not necessarily an exit of these countries, but it would lead to a, a less cohesion and a less united Europe. That is a conflict which, which, we, you know, which is part of this wider picture. I think that's absolutely right. I think it is an existential moment like Brexit and like the, the, the Eurozone crisis and, and the summit coming up in, in just a few days' time is going to be very important. Um, I mean, I, I think you characterize Wolfgang Merkel's approach well. That's to say it's more intergovernmental, but tries to keep the whole EU together. Except, of course, as you mentioned, in 2011, when they went the enhanced cooperation route. And so, you know, there would be 
an irony if the EU or other EU member states were prepared to do that to David Cameron's Britain, but not to Viktor Orban's Hungary. Uh, on the question of, essentially, it's a question of more integration or more disintegration. I think there are there are quite plausible but different routes to a, a weakening of the union, if not actual disintegration. Um, I mean, I think, au fond, a French perception, which one quite often hears, and, and sometimes between the lines um, from Macron, is, you know, well, we've got rid of the bloody Anglo-Saxons with Brexit, and if only we could get rid of these troublesome East Europeans who've never really been part of Enlightenment Europe anyway, um, then we would be back to a right tight old European community with um, Sotto Voce, France, right at its centre. That's a little bit of a caricature, but there's an element of that. And, and in the German case, of course, behind what you're saying is Mitteleuropa. I mean, I mean, we have a situation in which, as I said, the Hungarian and Czech and Polish economies are so deeply integrated with the German economy that Friedrich Naumann's idea of Mitteleuropa, which one was one of an integration of political economy, is quite far advanced. And so what you see in Merkel and in Ursula von der Leyen, by the way, is a German approach which sort of says, well, East Central Europe is so important to us economically and politically in every which way that we just have to keep good and close relations with whoever is in power there so that the, as it were, the values, the issue of liberal democracy, human rights and rule of law take second place to, so to speak, the geo-economic and geo-strategic imperatives of, of middle Europa. Now, of course, those two alternatives, the French and German visions, to some extent, cancel each other out. So I don't think it'll ever actually, or not in the foreseeable future, come to the crunch point of actual division. Um, but what one could see is growing tensions and fault lines between those two views. What you're saying would suggest, I completely agree, by the way, that this uh, the this sort of mercantilism of Germany is indeed a, a, a factor in German-Hungarian relations and also German, you know, Germany has many uh, economic interests in Poland and the Czech Republic too. Um, these these inform German policies, just as German investments in China inform Germany's position on human rights in that country. Um, uh, but if, if that is correct, if that observation is correct, would it not suggest that Merkel will try to find a compromise here rather than confront the situation? If we look at how she dealt with issues or the many issues, not all issues, but with many issues in the last 15 years, uh, you know, the, the, the approach, shall we say, was not always characterized by an attempt to find a solution. 
uh, that is lasting, but usually by an attempt uh, to find a temporary solution. We used to use the expression kicking the can down the road uh, unkindly. Um, uh, in this case, is there a danger that she that we could just go for fudge? I mean, I've heard one suggestion that, you know, Poland, Hungary and Germany together are only a few, you know, a, a, a few million people away from a qualified minority under the QMV voting rules. All they would need is finding one other big country or two other medium-sized country to block any rule of law procedure. So could we end up with a rule of law linkage to the EU budget and a gentleman's agreement between the three countries and a fourth country, whoever that may be? Uh, I did some calculations. I think Romania and Bulgaria together would probably get them over the brink or Italy or Spain, uh, any one of them, um, uh, that we could basically just cast this problem aside as a theoretical one, leaving the rule of law linkage in a complete limbo and without any force and credibility whatsoever. Well, it's a very interesting uh, suggestion. I mean, the first thing to say that, of course, the, you know, we, we have the verb to Merkel, Merkel, and um, like, like many things in life, it has, to use the French phrase, les défauts de ses qualités, um, you know, it, its its strength was seen in the marathon five-day negotiation that got us this budget and recovery fund in the first place. I mean, there's something admirable in her ability just to stick with it until you finally get a deal. But in 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 this case, I think that strength is indeed a weakness because I think it's highly plausible that even as we speak, she is trying to find that compromise, that fudge. Whether it's exactly what you describe, um, I simply don't. I tend to doubt it because I think it would be an extraordinary moment if if Germany became the blocking minority with a, a group of, of Central and East European states. But there are lots of other ways. I mean, there could be, as it were, assurances added to it. There could be an emergency break, familiar phrase, um, which, which allowed Hungary and Poland to take it to the European Council, which is, of course, what always what they want to do. Um, they could be promised the Article 7 procedures would be rapidly ended. So, yes, I think we are very likely heading to a bad compromise. Timothy, let me let me play devil's advocate on, on Hungary. You called Hungary uh, not only an illiberal democracy, but a non-democracy. Uh, the constitutional amendments that the Fidesz administration is, is trying to pass include an electoral law that in consequence would not be too different from electoral laws, say, in the UK, where parties uh, that have 45%, 50% of the vote uh, command a vast majority of the votes, where opposition parties find it in practice very difficult to form joint lists and defeat uh, or at least you know gain seats at the expense of the ruling coalition. So voting systems in the EU are very different. The Italians gerrymander the system almost every other election, uh, often with the same intent. What is so specifically different about Hungary? So that is a great question, Wolfgang, because as I was saying, this whole system is designed to look like a respectable member state. And um, actually, 
the rather murky game that has been played between Hungary and the EU for many years might be summed up as we pretend to be a democracy and you pretend to believe us. <laughs> um, almost every single thing that Orban has done in Hungary, and this is, by the way, the ninth set of changes to the constitution, almost every single thing, you can find something similar somewhere else in Europe. So the way he's established control of the media, the changes to the electoral law, the political appointment of judges and the erosion of the independent judiciary, the politicization of the public administration, um, all these individual elements, you could say, well, they do that in Portugal, or they do that in Britain, or they do that in Greece. It is the accumulation, the aggregation of all these different illiberal tendentially anti-democratic and certainly anti-pluralist pieces, which together uh, make it no longer in practice a democracy. Um, to use the old Hegelian or Marxist phrase, quantity at some point becomes quality. And the, it's a sheer quantity of of. of points at which he has chipped away at the way in which our pluralist liberal democracy should work that turns it into a kind of hybrid authoritarian regime. And to give a specific example, the media. On paper, the media look wonderful, wonderfully pluralist, lots of diverse private owners. The reality, however, is, and one can document this, that all the major media are in the hands of owners or oligarchs, including foreign owners, who are in cahoots with Orban, who are rewarded with contracts from the state in other parts of their businesses, and by the way, with a large amount of state-funded advertising, which is denied to any genuinely independent or critical media. Um, so it's all designed to look like a democracy, but go behind the facade. And the reality is very different. Um, you mentioned earlier that Orban was a very different man in the 1980s. I've heard the story, too, that uh, for people who knew him in the 1990s, including Germans who, uh, you know, who sponsored him um, uh, and who felt that he was their ally. Helmut Kohl, in particular, saw Viktor Orban as a, as a friend. Um, and what do we know what 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 why he flipped why he has become why he developed this way is it just pure greed and corruption or is are there events that that led to this man's uh, uh, turn yes I, there were there were really three components to it um the most important is that he 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 lost power and had to work out how to get back to it And he worked out, and he said this quite frankly, um, that the way was to move towards the right and to become more nationalist and more populist. And that was very successful. It gave him a triumphant election result in 2010, which enabled mm. him to have the parliamentary majority to change the constitution. So that's element number one. Element number two is 
that he is very seriously interested not just in power but also in wealth. And it is well known that his family and his cronies have done extremely well out of the period of his rule. And, and, and this includes, of course, uh, EU contracts. I mean, the EU's own investigation, anti-corruption investigation, has, has revealed that. So element number two is personal interest in money and power. Element number three, however, is that he comes from a small town in the Hungarian countryside. And as you know, there is a historic tension between the more populist, conservative, nationalist country and small town Hungary and cosmopolitan metropolitan Budapest. And, and there's some element of that cultural and ideological uh, tension also, I think, genuinely in him. I mean, he has a genuine rhetoric, which is conservative, uh, quite emphatically Christian, uh, traditionalist, anti-liberal. So I think if those three elements together make up the Orban phenomenon. And how is Morawiecki different? It, it, we don't seem to have the corruption issue in Poland in the way we have this in Hungary, but they seem to be more intent of going after the, the prosecutors and the justices. Well, first of all, Morawiecki is not the key player in Poland. The, 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 the Polish equivalent of, of Viktor Orban is Jarosław Kaczynski. Mm the party leader of the Law and Justice Party, formerly only a vice premier, but actually the guy who's calling all the shots. And here you have to understand two things. First of all, they have said explicitly, explicitly, that they want to follow the Hungarian playbook. And um, uh, it's been about the court's Recently, basically, they've largely got control, political control of the courts, as the European Court of Justice has, has explicitly ruled. Now they're going after the independent media, uh, which Orban has so successfully done. So that is the thing to watch. If there's one thing to watch in Poland over the next year or two, it will be the attempt to gain political control of the remaining independent media in the name of repolonization of ownership of the media. Besides that, as with Orban, there is an ideological element in that Kaczynski and the Law and Justice Party and Morawiecki too are reaching back to the, the tradition of what was called national democracy in pre-war Poland, uh, which was uh, strongly identified with the Roman Catholic Church, nationalist, traditionalist, and more anti-German than anti-Russian. So there is both a, a, a power calculation and an, a genuinely ideological dimension to it. But I'd say again, we shouldn't, we almost shouldn't talk about them politically in the same breath, because there's so much more resistance and opposition and pluralism in Poland the danger in Poland is not consolidated authoritarianism. The danger, as not infrequently before in Polish history, is a god-awful mess. The opposition parties in Poland, having now lost two, two elections in a row, um, is do you see any, any chance that the opposition might regain 
power in Poland in the foreseeable future, whereas that seems to be unlikely in Hungary. Um, elections in Poland are still winnable in a way that's much more difficult in Hungary. The last presidential election was a matter of one or two percent. It was incredibly close. Um, actually, the opposition had a very good candidate. Um, the, the, the political party opposition, as opposed to the civil society opposition, uh, is still very weak. They simply haven't got their act together. They have a very good candidate for president in Rafał Cheskowski. Now what's happened is that Cheskowski has gone off and founded a civil society movement called Ruch Wspólna Polska, the, the, the movement of Poland together. He shouldn't be doing a civil society movement. He should be at the heart of a, of a united opposition. So the election is there for the winning, but on past form, the Polish opposition, since the disappearance of Donald Tusk, uh, has not been very good at getting its act together to win the election, alas. To which extent is um, does Germany play a role in the Polish Polish debate? You mentioned the uh, precursor to the Law and Justice Party in the 1930s was motivated fundamentally by anti-German tendencies. So does Law and Justice? It appears um, the relationship between the two countries has becoming more difficult in the last uh, in the last you know in the recent in recent years. Um, do you see this as a as a a trend, a, a deteriorating situation? I understand Germans are getting worried about the situation there. It is, and, and it saddens me deeply because, as you know, I spent many years of my life writing a history yeah. of German Ostpolitik called mm -hmm. In Europe's Name. And at the beginning of the 1990s, we could see that Polish-German relations were going to be very difficult, given that what a significant part of the territory of today's Poland used to be part of the German Reich, given the mass expulsion slash flight of Germans from Poland, given the history of Nazism and the Second World War. And 20 years on, say in around 2010, one thought, wow, despite all those difficulties, these two countries are getting beyond that difficult history. They're coming together as partners, actually very close partners in the European Union and NATO. So it, it was all looking very good. And so much of that good work has been undone. By the way, not so much, I think, in widespread social attitudes, but in the rhetoric of law and justice, which is luridly and, um, and, and paranoically anti-German, um, which is another reason why Angela Merkel is so reluctant to get tough on this issue. And here I have some sympathy with her and with Germany because if you want somebody to be lecturing Poland about the rule of law and democracy, there is a case 
that it should be somebody French or Dutch or Italian, or dare I say even British, rather than German. So there's a genuine sensibility there, but it's a very depressing fact. It's an important part of law and justice's uh, rhetoric, rhetorical appeal. Um, Although, as I say, I think that you know, five years down the road, if you had a different president and a different party in power, um, a, a lot of that would just uh, would just drain away. I don't think it's gone so deep in the whole society. Yeah. Is there scope for the EU to play a game of divide et impera between Hungary and Poland? For example, the two countries, while their interests seem to be aligned on rule on the rule of law issue, have very different attitudes towards Russia, for example. Uh, is there scope for us to exploit that? Um, uh, interesting question. I, I, I think we really missed... I say we again, the EU missed a, a, a trick there um, because uh, it's now very clear that Orban and Morawiecki have formed a very close tactical or even strategic bond, which, by the way, includes the fact that Article 7 uh, procedures uh, uh, in the end quite pointless because Hungary will veto on behalf of Poland yes. and Poland will veto on behalf of Hungary. So it'll never get to the point. So I, I don't think that in the near future, uh, there's a great deal of mileage of in that. Uh, longer term, I, I, there certainly is. I was quite impressed yesterday when I saw their joint statement by the strength of their commitment that none, no country would take action to the detriment of the other. That seem to cement their strategic and, alliance. And remember that they are old allies, that there's a history of Polish-Hungarian solidarity, uh, which goes well back into the 19th century to 1848, for example. Um, 1956, AC is in a way a shared uh, anti-Soviet uprising. So I think there's um, there's a lot going on there, and I don't think that it's going to be It's so easy to, to to drive a wedge a wedge between them. So coming back to our initial question, while they are very likely bluffing to some extent, they have reasonable expectation to at least prevail in some some respects in their in their strife against the European rule of law mechanism. I'm very sorry to say that if I were a betting man, I would have to bet on the rule of law conditionality being so watered down that they will continue, they, the Hungarian and Polish populace, will continue, in effect, to have their cake and eat it. Uh, my, my last sort of thought and plea would be, if that happens, which it may well do, I hope we don't just give up on this issue of democracy and the rule of law in East Central Europe and elsewhere. We have to keep at it because it is ultimately going to erode two of the basic foundations of the whole European project. Uh, Jean Monnet himself said um, near the end of his life, you can have a dictatorship in Europe, but you can't have a dictatorship in the European community. Well, we're getting pretty close. And it is, of course, also a legal order. And if you do not have 
the rule of law in a couple of member states, then the functioning also of the of the single market and and of the uh, things that are at the core of the European Union will be put into question. Um, so it is as existential a challenge uh, to the European Union as Brexit has been and as the crisis of the Eurozone was. Thank you, Timothy, for this fascinating tour de force of Central European politics. And thank you all for listening. Until next time.